everyone, and thanks for tuning in to Shout for Libraries. My name is Julia, and with me today is Corey. Hello. Hi, Corey. Corey is our fearless leader here at Shout, uh, who is here to tell us all about the very literally underground library collections here in Edmonton. Yes, I am. Uh, for those of you who haven't tuned in before, Shout is a show created by Masters in Library and Information Studies students, such as ourselves, at the University of Alberta. And uh, on each episode, we bring you a half hour of original, freshly out of our brains, library-related content. So fresh. So, so fresh. That's right. Oh, speaking of fresh, did you know that the University of Michigan Library has a book in its collection entirely made out of cheese. Okay, I love that. Please tell me more. So this book is made out of 20 slices of craft singles. So even calling it a cheese book might be actually <laughs> inaccurate. What is in those things? Uh, apparently no one is concerned about getting it going bad at all. Uh, yeah, and on a related note, maybe humans should not be consuming those. Maybe not. But on an actually related note, libraries have interesting things in them and services that maybe you would not have expected. And that brings me to today's episode. Uh, we are going to talk about what do libraries hold? What's even in there? Uh, we've gathered perspectives from library staff and students about what they think are some of the more interesting or exciting things or programs available in the libraries. Awesome. So Bruce Peel, uh, for those of, you know, those of our listeners who might not be familiar with that, what, what is Bruce Peel? Okay, so Bruce Peel Special Collections is a library on campus that has rare books and archival collections, and it's located in the basement of Rutherford South. It's pretty small when you walk in, but it actually holds over 100,000 items. Oh, wow. Yeah, that either fit into specific collections or are considered standalone items that don't quite fit neatly into a collection. So the kinds of collections that you can see there are the artist books that we had just talked about, which we've actually been collecting for the past couple decades, we also have several important first editions and rare copies of books from authors such as Charles Dickens, William Blake, Margaret Atwood, and Jane Austen. Uh, what else? We also have a pretty impressive collection of Victorian and Edwardian children's books, which if you think about it, for children's books to survive that long, that's pretty impressive. So we also have specific press collections, such as the Heavenly Monkey Press, the Orion Press, or my favorite, the Hogarth Press, which was started by Virginia and Leonard Wolfe. And that one is particularly special because several of the copies that we have were hand-printed by Virginia and Leonard. So if you look at those copies and you know that they were the people who actually set the type, they cranked the press, they chose the art, that's pretty wild when you consider the print publishing industry today and how separated we are from authors. So there are things that Virginia Woolf literally crafted. Yep, and like mistakes that she literally made. Oh, amazing. Um, and we also have some pretty impressive archival collections that researchers and visitors come in to see. The first two that come to mind are our Chinese Experience in Canada collection and our Sam Steele Family Archive. And a lot of these archival collections, they feature photos, journals, diaries, scrapbooks, postcards, and other ephemera. So Bruce Peel has so many you know, unique things in it. So how does it compare with other libraries or even to museums? You're talking about kind of archival materials. Mm -hmm. So it's different than other libraries on campus because our stacks are closed to the public. So unfortunately, you can't browse through the books the same way that you could at a regular library. And that's why I encourage people to come in and visit us or our website and look at our collection in the online catalog. 
And the reason why the stacks are closed is because protecting the materials is our top concern. So everything is stored behind the public space in the proper storing conditions. And it's also different because visitors are only able to engage with the items in our reading room after they're given specific instructions on how to handle the items. So none of the items will ever actually leave the library, which is pretty special. And compared to museums, we aren't able to display all of our materials to the same extent. We are a pretty small space, so we have a limited amount of items on display and we currently have an exhibit going on that highlights some really beautiful books in our Bruce Danzig Angling Collection. The exhibits are really one of my favorite things that we do at Bruce Peel. About three times a year, a new exhibit is arranged. And not only is it a nice space to show off what treasures we have, but it also brings in so many new people into the space. Like right now with the angling exhibit, I literally knew nothing about angling. And initially when we were setting up the exhibit, I marveled at the books that had the beautiful ties with the feathers from exotic birds. But... Now that I've actually talked to people that have come in to see the collection and they've talked about why these books are so special, I've come to really appreciate the collection and such a strange niche genre of books. So, okay, if you had to pick, what is your number one? Like, what's your favorite thing right now? Buckle up. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So I encourage listeners to pause this episode if you're listening on SoundCloud or if you're listening on the radio, make a mental note to look up the Voynich Manuscript, which it's been described as the most mysterious book that no one can read. So essentially this book, (laughs) it's likely from the early 15th century, and it has some pretty incredible drawings of tiny people in green water, strange and elaborate drainage systems, otherworldly plants that kind of look like plants we have, but then if you look down, they'll have root systems that make no sense, and they look like they're from another planet. Um, Also some really bizarre hybrid animals. What? Yeah, it sounds great, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I recommend doing an internet deep dive if you're unfamiliar with the art, but also you need to see the text because it's really beautiful and also one of the most confusing parts of the book because it's written in a language that's still indecipherable. And there's been many attempts throughout history trying to decode this book, um, and it's happened all over the world. Even at the U of A in 2017, we had two scientists that used artificial intelligence to try and decode the first sentence. And it's up to debate if they were successful or not, which again is another internet deep dive that you can do. So we have a copy of the facsimile. And so a facsimile, if you're unfamiliar, it's a type of book that's created to look like an exact replica of an original. And it's astounding how realistic it is. So all of the damages, the markings, the sewn repairs that exist in the manuscript also exist on the facsimile. It's just such a special connection to the past and also a connection to this mystery that has baffled many people, not just me. And also, yeah, the tactile experience of seeing and touching a physical item versus scrolling through websites and digitized manuscripts. It's so valuable and it really blew me away. That's so nerdy. (laughs) Yeah, it's cool. Like you're such a dork, but that is amazing. Mm -hmm. That is actually, that's amazing. Yeah. I want to crack the code. I want to be the one. I've never even seen this book. I have some theories. Yeah, I do. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for telling us about these. I love hearing about the secret stash of treasures uh, and what librarians can tell us, what we don't know about. Um, And that's actually what the next segment is about as well. So this week, I took to the stacks to ask a few librarians what they thought was something cool in their libraries. Uh, And I grabbed a couple little little opinions. So here's a collection of what they had to say. 
This is Julia Guy for Shout for Libraries coming to you from In the Fields, uh, where I am trekking around the University of Alberta asking librarians, what do you think is cool? What's something in the collection or a service that's available at the libraries that you think is interesting or that excited you or that you think people might be interested in? Uh, so I'm here with Celine Garo-Brennan. She is a public services librarian at the University of Alberta, uh, and she's going to tell us a little bit about uh, something that she thinks is cool. So something I think is really cool and a new initiative at the U of A libraries is the robots you can check out from the libraries. So now the Coots Library, the education library, and the Bibliothèque Saint-Jean, the French library at the French campus, uh, they both have a whole selection of robots that students can check out. I am not new to robots in the library, having worked at Edmonton Public Library, where we, we use robotics um, a lot in programming, but this is the first time that people can really check out robots and bring them home, work with them, play with them. I think this is great for education students who can bring robots home and try them out in classroom settings to help with their teaching. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, pre-made robots, I'd say, so self-contained robots like Ozobots and Sphero, where the robot is good to go and you do the coding. And then there's modular robots too, like uh, Lego Robotics and Cubelets where you assemble the robot and you program it. Oh my God, that's amazing. I had no idea that you could take them out. Thank you so much, Celine. I am here with academic librarian David Saltz. Uh, he is based out of Rutherford North Library and also works with the Asian Studies, Religious Studies, History, and Economics Department. So David, can you tell us what's something cool that you think uh, is in the holdings here at Rutherford? One of my favorite things to show people is called the Acta Sanctorum. It's about 60 volumes. Essentially, it's the lives of the saints organized chronologically, so January 1st, January 2nd. They're huge books. You can see, what is this? 45 centimeters by about 15 centimeters and probably weighs like five pounds. It's all in Latin. The project was started in like the 1600s, 1629, and I'm not even sure that it's done yet. Wow, that's amazing. And what year is this one from? Our, most of our volumes come from an 1863 printing of it. So that was partway through, although some of the later volumes are from the 1920s or 1930s or 1940s, as they added the November and December volumes into the set. Amazing. So what, what makes this really interesting to you? Like, what's something that you really like about this? Well, I think a part of it is this connection to, like, historical academe involves big books written in Latin. And in the digital world, we often forget that piece of it, that tangible opening a big creaky book that's almost too heavy to hold. But interestingly, just in December, a high school class was in and I was showing them this because I like showing them because of how big it is. And apparently they just read a book called Fifth Business by Robertson Davies, a classic of Canadian literature. And the Acta Sanctorum is a major character in this book. It's a major piece of this book. So even though I read this book probably 20 years ago. Over Christmas, I reread the book because I didn't realize that the Acta Sanctorum is actually in that very famous Canadian literature book. So cool. Thank you, David. All right, I'm here with Michelle Braley, who is a digital initiatives librarian. Uh, so Michelle, what are some initiatives or some services, something cool uh, happening over here that people might not know about? So I'm a digital initiatives librarian at the University of Alberta. Um, so that right there is already an interesting position for a librarian. Um, but what my work mostly revolves around is open educational resources. So 
These are teaching, learning, and research materials um, that are openly licensed. So this is really a new and exciting way to think about how we're teaching and learning. Um, so what this could mean, for example, is if you're an instructor, you could find like a, a textbook with an open license on it. Um, and if it's an OER, then you're able to take that resource and remix it and revise it to fit the needs of your class. So as a student coming into that class, it has a major impact because instead of going to um, wherever and purchasing your textbook for several hundred dollars, you would have this free, openly available textbook. There's also a huge collaborative element to open educational resources. So you're able to collaboratively build resources with people at your institution or beyond and really build connections in new ways for teaching, learning, and research materials. So does that mean that people just have access to these and so they don't have to be in a course, they can just freely use them? Yeah, that's exactly uh, what it means. And another big part of it is that people who might not have access to the same formal education or might not be able to deal with the financial burden of higher education, they would have access to the same resources to learn from. But also a huge thing that I like to mention to faculty is that, you know, when your students are in your course, they might get this one edition of a textbook and they have access to our library resources. But then when they graduate, they no longer have access to those resources. So for example, if you're like a physiotherapist or in, in a field where you would need to be aware of what's coming up in the literature um, and you don't have access to it um, through the university anymore, this is a, a way to get access to that trusted um, information and a way for um, researchers to build connections within the professional communities and ensure that they're like building a holistic community that's communicating with each other. So out of all of the resources that you have looked at in this department, are there any that really stand out as being especially kind of interesting or useful that people might not know that they have access to? Oh, there's so many, and it's so discipline-specific. Um, there's one, um, like, giant program through the University of Alberta called Surgery 101, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it's like a huge resource full of um, pretty, like surgery tutorial videos or surgery like lessons. And so you can learn about any surgical concept freely online through these resources. Um, they're up in iTunes. You can, people from around the world download them. Um, people from around the world, for example, in medical schools who don't, um, medical programs who don't have the same funding as ours, they're able to get access to these free resources for their students. Again, these open educational resources, it's a new way of thinking of teaching and learning instead of just learning from a traditional textbook. That's so great. I want to go learn surgery now. <laughs> Bet anyone can do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm here with Anne Carwigan, who is the coordinator of Indigenous Initiatives at the library here at U of A. So Anne, tell me about what you chose to talk about. What's your uh, cool item at the library? Well, it's difficult to choose, but what I picked for today is a DVD called Outno, which was made by Connor McNally, who I've known since he was an undergraduate here at the university, and now he's a filmmaker. And this film is done by him, and it, uh, it shows Dwayne Donald, who is a prof at the Faculty of Education, and he does river walks, and he takes groups into the River Valley and shows them how um, the history of Indigenous peoples 
unfolded before Amiskwachiwaskaigan was even was even a city. He shows he shows plants, he shows land formations, he talks about what happened and what people did, what indigenous people did in in in, in those days. So it's it's oral history, it's traditional knowledge, um, and it's a way of bringing those kinds of materials, like non-textual materials, into students' research. So students can kind of use this, the, the knowledge that's in, in these kinds of videos to extend their peer-reviewed research. <laughs> that, of course, is a good thing as well. That's amazing. So that's right here at uh, Rutherford North, just in the, in the hold section, that people can just take that out. That's awesome. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, I loved talking to a couple librarians about their favorite items because I had no idea about any of those before doing these interviews. Uh, And I will admit that these opinions are very U of A focused, uh, and partly that's because we are all master's students and we effectively live on campus. Uh, But keep in mind that there are lots of unknown items at libraries all over the place. So if you find your way to a library, feel free to ask them what they think is cool as well. So I wasn't the only librarian uh, hitting the pavement to ask uh, ask people about what their favorite items in the collections are. Uh, up next, we have a segment by Shouts Caitlin Grant, who interviewed Larry La Liberté, a librarian at the William C. Wonders Map Collection. Uh, what in the world could be exciting about a map collection? Well, let's ask Larry. Thanks. My name is uh, Larry La Liberté. I'm the GIS slash map librarian. Um, one of the few job titles that still have a slash in it, I think. Um, I'm involved with uh, everything spatial here in the library, so all the spatial data that's uh, digitally uh, sort of pulled together uh, for uh, various projects on campus, uh, research projects, faculty, uh, you know, principal investigation projects. Uh, so we kind of pull a lot of that data together, or we provide shortcuts uh, for folks looking for data that's online. A lot of times this data is buried or, you know, three or four clicks down, and so we can kind of get folks right to the kind of resources they want. As far as the maps go, uh, essentially we're dealing with a map collection as all map collections are in academic libraries in transition from uh, print and analog and occupying uh, lots of space. Um, you know, can't see this in radio, but you know, it is a large uh, encompassing collection that takes up about a half of a floor, uh, maybe two-thirds of a floor uh, in Cameron Library. And we're sort of looking at how do we reduce the footprint while maintaining the integrity of the core principles of the collection. Um, the collection is wide-ranging, but uh, it does have a focus on the prairies, obviously, and the north. That's within the collection development policy, uh, though there are uh, pockets of uh, European uh, collections um, that have been collected over the years and are here. Uh, but yeah, Canadiana, down to the prairies, into the north, and all types of maps. Um, you know, you can look at uh, topographic maps, exploring maps, uh, maps that deal with um, uh, administrative units. Uh, but in a nutshell, shell, it's really a one large uh, collection that uh, implicates on the prairies the settler geography. Um, It's a colonial collection, uh, even in areas, as you can imagine, in Europe and Africa, uh, areas of uh, colonization. And these maps are the statements of the colonial power often that went into maps so they can control the land. Uh, So we have a lot of that here. uh, And ideally, what we want to do going forward is try to start to flip the colonial stories on their head uh, so that we can maybe utilize the same maps to tell different stories. Essentially, if I was to just give a rough estimate, I would think probably 95% of the maps in here have some sort of link uh, to a colonial uh, uh, conquest or a uh, settler geography. 
it's not necessarily a personal favorite, but I think it's a map that best encompasses the notion of settler geographies uh, on the prairies. And it's essentially, if I can get it out of here, it's, um, it's technically titled uh, Edmonton. It's a sectional map. Uh, they, had, they did a bunch of these in the prairies, and they ranged from anywhere from 1880s to about the 1930s. And this sectional map, number 315, encompasses the Edmonton area uh, and a lot of the eastern aspect of the province. Um, and I, I like it because it is a uh, pure distillation of settler geography, overstayed and shifted. Uh, you have meshed townships and overwrought rails, diminished trails as roads begin to clout their right-of-ways. The height of the telegraph offices and postal service, built-up areas associated and their debris fields that enveloped edges, slipped by caustic drip of oblique annihilations when hashiers gave way to administrative hierarchies. It's a landscape hitched to quarter sections and even the Papachase Reserve, IR number Number 136 left on the land only as a named industrial area, obliterated by the infectious curvatures of Mill Woods, underpinned and layered the eggscape uh, at the expense of generations that came before. And yet on this map, there's a halo green that saturates the Cooking Lake Forest Reserve, tinted brown contour lines that show the end of a glacial moraine that radiates east, once a ridge for explorers like Thompson, Fiddler and Pond and now patterns built upon the sins of abstract spatial communication detailing the land from a godlike stance. Hudson's Bay, surveyors, settlers, and IS settlers here and there land spared the thirst of the tillerman who exclaimed in reasons that they abandoned too stony, too stony, swampy, too much scrub, dry, hilly, cold, frosty, sandy, and rough, fill of hills and fill of rocks. As one individual stated, this land is of no use for farming, all but 20 acres being gumbo, wet, low land, too stony, too stony. And I think that's why I appreciate this map, because there's a thousand stories that are not only on the map, but we can peel back the layers uh, to make oranges out of the deformation and chalked up as projection, and take these analog prints and scan them and retire them to digitally browsed world and embed new and old truths as points, lines, and polygons. Um, to paraphrase R.E.M., we can erase the parts we do not like and bank the quarry river swam. Thank you, Caitlin Grant, for that story. That's all super awesome. Uh, now along the lines of people passionate about books and libraries, we have Joel Blelshinger with a discussion of Susan Orlean's investigation into libraries, their collections, and a healthy dose of arson through her work, The Library Book. Released in October 2018, celebrated American nonfiction writer Susan Orlean's latest offering, The Library Book, is an immersive exploration of the Los Angeles Public Library from its founding in 1872 through to its contemporary operations. The book is also a sustained meditation on the public library as an institution at the center of American civic life, interweaving Orlean's investigation of an unsolved 1986 fire at LAPL's Central Library, her research into LAPL's history and its colorful cast of characters, along with attentive portraits of present-day library operations, from map indexing to library shipping, teen and children's services, and library language courses, among many other services. In this last mode, the library book sometimes reminded me of American documentarian Frederick Wiseman's 2017 opus, Ex Libris, The New York Public Library, a three-hour, 26-minute cinema verite treatment of NYPL. Though Orlean, unlike Wiseman, immerses herself in these modern-day library operations rather than just observing, 
interacting with LAPL staff, and at one point, even being pressed into doing intake work as part of a social services programming event that she initially intends only to document at LAPL's central library. Orlean covers so much in her book that to attempt to touch on it all in a review would be a fool's errand. Instead, I thought that in keeping with our episode's theme of highlighting unique items that our collections hold, I would select several relevant passages from the book that seem to speak to the uniqueness of library collections. As mentioned, the library book takes as one of its central subjects an unsolved 1986 fire at LAPL's Central Library, and Orlean writes powerfully about book burning and Libricide as destructive practices at several moments in the text. Early in the book, Orlean tells us what was lost in that fire in a harrowing list that repeatedly shifts evocatively from the micro, that is, specific, unique items in LAPL's collections, to the macro, collections and subcollections considered an aggregate. Orlean undertakes this rhetorical shifting to me to drive home that collections, though often conceived of according to the mental shorthand of the aggregate, are always comprised of the individual, the unique, the novel, the unexpected, that this is, in a sense, the power of collections for the unspecific mass of the aggregate to reveal itself as specific and unique to each individual user. What was lost? A volume of Don Quixote from 1860, illustrated by French printmaker Gustave Doré. All of the books about the Bible, Christianity, and church history. All biographies of subjects H through K. All American and British plays. All theater history. All Shakespeare. 90,000 books about computers, astronomy, physics, chemistry, biology, medicine, seismology, engineering, and metallurgy. All of the unbound manuscripts in the science department a book by architect Andrea Palladio from the 1500s, a leaf from a 1635 Coverdale Bible, which was the first complete translation in modern English. The passage continues on like this, shifting, as I said, between aggregate collections and individual items, until Orlean comes to the total figures of the fire. In total, 400,000 books in Central Library were destroyed in the fire, an additional 700,000 were badly damaged by either smoke or water, or both. The number of books destroyed or spoiled was equal to the entirety of 15 typical branch libraries. It was the greatest loss to any public library in the history of the United States. That was from pages 33 and 34. Another passage relevant to our episode theme that struck me has to do with Orlean thinking through questions of surprise in and the knowability of LAPL's collections. There are a lot of surprising things in the library, a lot of things you don't think of when you try to imagine all of what a library might contain. For instance, the LA Library has a huge collection of restaurant menus. Librarians Dan Strahl and Billy Connor started the collection, and an ophthalmologist from Palos Verdes, who collected menus since 1940, donated most of them. The ophthalmologist used his menus as a running diary of his dating life. He wrote a note on the back of many of them, recording which of his girlfriends accompanied him to the restaurant. There are so many things in a library, so many books and so much stuff, that I sometimes wondered if any one single person could possibly know what all of it is. I preferred thinking that no one does. I liked the idea 
the library is more expansive and grand than one single mind, and that it requires many people together to form a complete index of its bounty. That was from pages 265 and 66. It's hard for me to know exactly how to follow the power of that last quote. Suffice to say, the library book is a moving reading experience filled with many moments like that, where Orlean brings fresh eyes to, and in doing so, reveals the beauty of this oft-overlooked institution, the public library. If you are just tuning in, this is Show for Libraries on CJSR. And unfortunately, you're a little bit late because that's it for today's show. Uh, if you want to let us know about what your favorite things are available at your library, reach out to us on our Facebook page at Show for Libraries or tell us on Twitter at Shout, the number four, Libraries. Uh, once again, this has been your host for this month, Julia. Uh, thank you for letting me lead you along this half hour of library-centric radio. Uh, I want to thank our special guests today, our interviewees, Celine Garo-Brennan, David Saltz, Michelle Braley, Anne Carwigan, and Larry LaLiberté for taking time to share with us what their favorite things are at their libraries. And thank you for tuning in. Catch us on the next episode of Shout for Libraries, and don't forget to check, check it out! out.